The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So it's um, it seemed like as Kamala and I were reflecting on what kind of teachings might be useful, and maybe especially in light of Kamala's talk last night on compassion to speak tonight about dukkha. And it's kind of a standing joke in the tradition um, how there are two groups of people. Some people, this is a term coined by Wes Nisker, some of you might know, one of the Spirit Rock teachers. But there are those people who are considered firsters in the sense that they really are into the first noble truth. There is dukkha. <laughs> and then there are thirdsters, people who are not sure why would be interested in the third noble truth, that there's an end to dukkha. <laughs> I think I'm one of the firsters. Um, and you might recognize, in terms of your own coming to the path, um, a lot of us, I think it's fair to say, when we first heard the teachings of the Buddha, felt really reassured and <clears throat> trusting because the way that the tradition talks about the reality that there is difficulty in life and that this isn't some mistake, it seems somehow woven into the very fabric of being a human being. For me, and I think for a lot of us, I feel very reassuring. Like somebody is naming something that has been discovered to be so true in my life, and I felt so grateful that somebody else, you know, and somebody, you know, well-known, like the Buddha, <laughs> saw the same thing, realized that, that there was this obvious, what do we say, that, you know, the elephant in the living room. There is dukkha in life. There is this profound and obvious, subtle and gross, experience of unsatisfactoriness, unreliable, uncertain, ungovernable quality that's just built into everything. And uh, I'm also really reassured, you know, as I heard more and studied more of the Buddhist teachings and the tradition, it was really reassuring to hear how the first attempt, you know, you might know the story somewhat after the Buddha's deep, powerful, liberating insight under the Bodhi tree, he spent several weeks in that area just integrating, understanding, resting in the bliss of that freedom, you know, figuring out, I'm guessing this is sort of me, and, sort of projecting, figuring out how to be a human being again, right? And it's so reassuring, and it's just, and I think for me a little surprising that they left it in the tradition, you know, they had 2,600 years to edit this out, but this particular sutta they didn't, where the Buddha, having decided that he would attempt to share his insight with others, and it came to him to track down his old... Uh, spiritual friends that he had been practicing with earlier, but they left him because they thought he had gone soft, because he 
didn't see fasting going anywhere, fasting for the sake of fasting, rejecting sense, comfort, you know, and just a healthy body, rejecting that didn't seem to help the mind come into balance. So he took food, he um, supported his mind and body coming into balance, and he had a really profound insight that is still reverberating today. And so he decided to go find those friends because he thought that they might be able to find it useful what he, he had come to understand in his own heart. And then he ran into somebody on the road. And it, this is the part that's sort of interesting that they kept in. So I'll just read this, uh, pieces of it at least. So the person sees the Buddha walking, coming the other way, and he says to the Buddha, Clear, my friend, are your faculties pure, your complexion, and bright. On whose account have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? In whose dhamma do you delight? Right? So he, he noticed that this is not an ordinary human being. What's going on? I want what you have. <laughs> or something like that. And um, the Buddha responded, right? He's, he's figuring out like how to be useful. All vanquishing, all knowing am I with regard to all things, unadhering, all abandoning, released in the ending of craving, having fully known on my own, to whom should I point to as my teacher? And he goes on, just kind of <laughs> doing more riffs on this, and then ends by saying, or ends this part by saying, cooled am I, unbound. To set rolling the wheel of Dhamma, right, the wheel of the truth of the way that it is, I go to the city of Kasi, and a world become blind. I beat the drum of the deathless. And then the person, probably not really knowing what to do with all this, <laughs> says, from your claims, my friend, you must be an infinite conqueror. conqueror. And the Buddha says, conqueror are those like me who have reached fermentations and I have conquered evil qualities and so Upaka, that's the person's name, I am a conqueror. So when this was said, Upaka said, may it be so, my friend, and shaking his head, taking a side road, he left. <laughs> so it's just interesting that here it is, you know, somebody who probably had something to say to this person, but it wasn't useful, not obviously useful from the, the interaction that's recorded in the tradition. And he had evidently several weeks, like he probably, being a wise person, figured out like, okay, so that didn't go so well. <laughs> and, you know, on the road, reflecting before he met up with his old friends, maybe how best to meet them, right? How to be to meet them in their human condition, having understood something that was so transforming, how to integrate that into humanity in a way. And uh, I remember Chaz had this quote from John Wellwood, uh, Chaz de Capua, a teacher at IMS, that I saw. Um, John Wellwood is a psychologist and uh, author, and he's done a lot of study both in Buddhism and the yogic mystical traditions and 
the intersection between Western psychology and and sort of Eastern thought. But he he has this one quote that's something like we're not you know ordinary human beings waking up to be Buddhas. We're Buddhas figuring out how to be fully human. And it's like a quote from Rumi that you might have seen, because I don't know. It's probably a lot of the translations of Rumi, you know, sort of free. But the way this translation was, we're not in uh, a drop in the ocean, we're the ocean in a drop. So I I had that sense like, so how was the Buddha going to make his insight useful in the number of weeks it took him to walk to meet up with his friends? And then the talk that evidently the Buddha gave when he met the setting the wheel of Dhamma emotion talk. And uh, as the story goes, one of the five people had a powerful insight, the kind of first seeing, the first awakening stream entry from the Buddha's instructions or from the Buddha's talk. So it worked in the sense that the Buddha was able to somehow connect with these folks connect the insight that he had articulated in a way that helped human beings along the way. And that's what we're doing still today. We're benefiting from these teachings. And of course, the Buddha's talk was on the Four Noble Truths. And it was really, I think, this grounding in dukkha, like the spiritual path being grounded in dukkha. Because dukkha, suffering, the unsatisfactoriness, that there's just something that doesn't work in our lives. Yeah, it's life. (laughs) It kind of works, but never really, right? I mean, it almost works in moments for a while, but then it doesn't quite work. And I think this is true regardless of our location and culture, like how privileged we are, how much difficulty or oppression we've experienced in lives. There are some moments, enough moments, where we can, it can seem to us that we can really get satisfaction, really get safety, really get some solid ground that we can then kick back. I got it. I got what I was looking for. Because immediately, like, if that's the case, the next thing in our mind is, now how do I hold on to it? To keep someone from taking it away, or time from taking it away. So there is this pervasive truth of dukkha, and the Buddha names that. And I think for these many, you know, 2,600 years or so, human beings have been finding that really trustworthy. I know I have just because it lines up with my life. And I, I mean, I remember early on, even before, you know, I had any sense of the Buddhist teachings, just in high school, just an ordinary, you know, mixed up high schooler. Um, and I was really into running and just really into kind of being good and succeeding and always socially, academically, athletically, and uh, I got injured, and it kind of threw a wrench in that sort of achievement mentality. 
I was just a little bit more reflective because I couldn't run, you know, and then I was a pretty serious runner, so I was running in the morning and running in the evening, every day competing, and uh, so I had a little bit more time on my hand, and I could just see, like, chasing something, and then you maybe you get what you're chasing after, and then you chase more for something else, and maybe you get it or maybe you don't, and then you chase, and it just, and then my mind just started broadening out, like, well, that's also true in academics, getting good grades, getting to college. It's true in social arena, you know, being liked, being cool. And I just kind of used my powerful mind, <laughs> like, oh my God, when does this end? You know, I mean, it's not a powerful, it's obvious. You know, you look at your parents, you look at older people, you see they're doing the same thing you're doing as a 17-year-old. Where does this end? Where does the rat race end? And then, this is how it is, this sort of understanding arises, and there's no support. Like, I didn't run into the Buddhist teachings at that point, so it was sort of like, luckily I got better, and I started running again, and I didn't have time (laughs) to be more real about this human predicament. Until, just a few years later, I remember again, this really poignant time, because, uh, you know, after that first year in college, um, it sort of was just a a world of, like, more of that, just trying to be liked and trying to get ahead and da-da-da, all this sort of, you know, just spinning, spinning, spinning. And then, for some reason, my flight home back to Minnesota, I was up in school on the East Coast, I, I made it a little bit later than everybody else. So most of the campus was gone. I had like a day and a half. And, and it was like, there I was with all of that seeking mind, achievement mind, striving mind, trying to be good mind, trying to be better mind, and nothing to bounce off of, nothing to engage in, because it was all done. Right? I was just waiting to go to the airport for a day and a half. And I really, again, I saw the absurdity, I saw the endlessness of that. And, and this reflection went on much longer because <clears throat> by the time I got home to Minneapolis, I just worked all summer. I had, you know, two or three jobs trying to earn money for college. I didn't really socialize. So, and all the jobs were boring jobs. So I thought a lot about this. And it was like two-thirds of the way through the summer, early August, and it was like, the best conclusion I could come up with, like getting ready to come back, was to try harder. I mean, I'm not kidding. That was my insight. It's like, do it better, you know? Be a better runner. Be a better student. Be a cooler person that people will like. You know, it was sort of like, and it was like, I kind of rallied my strength. Okay, I guess this is how it works, you know? And then, and then that just sort of somehow got me through. I mean, there were a little a few breaks, but no real periods of serious reflection until I broke up with a woman that I'd been going out with for four years. This is about, I don't know, half a year or so, maybe, maybe about a year after college. So I was like 23. And then it sort of that ended. And it was sort of, a, that's an interesting time anyway. And then I got really reflective, like, okay, I don't actually have a clue 
I mean, all, all I know is there's the rat race, which doesn't make sense. And then it was like a blank. You know? And, and so I, I, I had some good instincts, so I said, okay, I gotta figure this out. So you're born, and you die, and you gotta live in between. <laughs> and it felt like you had to do that, right? It still does a lot of the time. <laughs> So I started reading a lot about, well, what, what does it all mean? You know, I just started reading books, and there was a book about um, denial of death. And it was, had a really interesting thesis that so much of what happens between birth and death is busy activity to help us forget about death. And it's really a life-changing book. It was a really powerful book anyway. It won the Pulitzer Prize maybe came out in the late 60s, early 70s by Ernst Becker. And, uh, and then it was very, you know, once you start getting interested in that topic and you're wondering who else had something to say about it, you run into the Buddha pretty quick, which I did. And, and like I said earlier, it was so moving to some of those initial teachings where he's naming dukkha, naming the rat race, naming the fundamental uneasiness behind the surface of our lives, or under the surface of our lives. And it felt really trustworthy, like, okay, what, let's see what this person has to say. Because at least, like, who else talks about that? That famous sutta, the handful of leaves, where the Buddha, you know, you probably, many of you have heard this, holds up a few leaves in his hands and asks, his students around him, the nuns and monks and lay people, whoever was with him. What's more, all the leaves in this beautiful forest or these few leaves in my hand? Obvious question. They said, there's a lot more up there. And the Buddha says, just so. There are many things that I've come to understand through the power of my mind and reflection, but I really honed down what I teach to suffering and the end of suffering. Why? because that's what's needed, that's what's useful, that's what's functional. And I think that takes us back to that story of the Buddha meeting that guy on the road. It's like he was saying things that wasn't really to the point. Hey, have you noticed? There's dukkha. Have you really noticed? Have you cultivated an honest relationship with that? Because it's onward leading, right? Because mostly, we're avoiding dukkha, we're staying busy and distracted because of dukkha, we don't really want to tune in, become intimate with the underlying uneasiness, underlying fear, underlying sense of lack, underlying sense of not being good enough, or the underlying uncertainty of our experience, of our existence, because we don't have an answer. So it appears from a distracted, not clear point of view, that being in denial of our existential situation is more helpful or useful or functional than getting interested, really showing up. And this is really the, the first noble truth There's um, 
well-known discourse where the Buddha talks about like how mostly when humans run into suffering, they complain about it, they lament, they grieve, they beat their breast, right? And there's this other possibility which is undertaking a search. And he gives this example in the middle length discourses of his own sort of how that came to be. There are these two searches, the innoble one, the not liberating search, and the noble or liberating search. And what is the not liberating search? There is a case where a person being subject to birth seeks happiness in what is likewise subject to birth. Being subject to aging, illness, death, sorrow, the torments of the heart, seeks happiness in what is like, likewise subject to these same things. Right? So we're, we're seeing, you know, as an ephemeral being, seeking permanency, ground, happiness, and things that are also impermanent, changing, ephemeral. It's, there's nothing like, you know, when I, I, I mentioned that I think about that perfect cabin where I'll be perfectly happy, you know, where everything will be just fine, and my mind will be perfectly calm and see things just as they are. Right? We have these imaginings where I'll do this or I'll do that and then things will be fine. But there's no better way to throw a little cold water on that, than to realize that things change. Things never stop changing. That even if you, even when we get what we want, it's not that things then stop changing. They keep changing. It's cold and then it's hot. At these eight worldly winds, I think I talked about earlier. And so it occurred to the Buddha, <coughs> You know, maybe I should seek, and he describes it this way, what is the noble search? There is a case where a person themselves being subject to birth, seeking the drawbacks, seeing the drawbacks of birth, seeks the unborn, unexcelled rest from the yoke, unbinding, being subject to aging, illness, death, sorrow, torments of the heart, Seeing the drawbacks of these things, one seeks the agingless, illnessless, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, unexcelled rest from the yoke, unbinding. This is the noble search. And when he did finally meet his friends, he began to talk by really helping them understand how to get out of distraction, but in a deeper sense. Because the, the distraction, the uneasiness that keeps us from seeing our predicament arises because of our certainty, our arrogant certainty that the resolution for any uneasiness has to do with sense, the sense realm, sense experience. Like if I can just get good grades, you know, going back to junior year in high school, or if I can just be the top athlete, then my problems will be over. 
So we generally, like if I could just fix this relationship, if this partner of mine could finally get me and sort of meet me, you know, then I'll be happy. If my knee pain would finally go away, then everything would be good because it would be, that's the only thing keeping me, my mind from settling down. And we have one thing after another. If this retreat could just end, <laughs> then I would be happy. <laughs> Why are they laughing, Kamala? <laughs> so the first teaching in this talk, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, the Buddha basically tells his friends when he once he found them that uh, you, you learn something, right? Because they were real intense ascetics, right? So they learned, they saw this first part that pursuing <laughs> happiness through sense experience is fundamentally flawed. But they missed the error of their ways, which is to presume that rejecting sense experience would be the ticket. And the, so the first thing the Buddha did before giving them really the path is help them like you're looking in the wrong place. You think the problem is sensuality, that we have sense experience. You're thinking that the dukkha that you're experiencing is because sense experience is unreliable. So you're, you make the, but you make the wrong conclusion. I need to reject sense experience, right? So I'm going to fast or I'm going to live out in the woods, or I'm going to lie in a bed of nails, or, you know, it, it gets kind of weird what human beings throughout history have done, taking this sort of ascetic principle to the nth degree. And uh, this is why they, these five folks had left the Buddha anyway, because they, they were pretty sure they were right, that happiness comes from rejecting sensuality seeing it as a problem. And the Buddha said the middle way, and we can think about this middle way so many times, because it's, it's generally the mind being in the push and pull of opposites, which is pretty pervasive. You know, we want to be good, we want to be good, but we never are good enough, so then we decide we're going to be bad. I saw this a lot in elementary school, when I, not when I was in elementary school, but when I taught elementary school. And uh, you see this with kids. It's like, at some point, kids assess, like, you know what, I'm not going to be one of the good ones. So, but I'm going to be one of the better bad ones. Right? Not, not a, like, kind of good, but not really, but like, bad and really bad. Right? Because it's all about being somebody. Right? And sort of being in the middle, that's not somebody. So if I can't be good, I'll be bad. And there are many of these sort of plays of opposites, you know, like <coughs> on retreat where we give up. Or then we get gung-ho, no, no, no. You hear an inspiring talk, or you have a good set, or you see another retreat and you just look so peaceful, and you kind of get back on the saddle, I can do this, I'm going to do this. And then you have a frustrating sit, I'm not going to do this, I give up. So we tend to swing between opposites a lot. So this initial part was the Buddha saying the middle way 
Is it about any opposites, any poles? And the way we know one of the poles is there's always a fixed idea, a fixed view. This is the way, this is the way. And the mind then isn't in this place of learning, isn't in this place of understanding. It's like this now, and sustaining that awareness and learning right there, immediately, directly, what's helpful, what's skillful, what's not helpful, what's not skillful. That's the middle way. And he, he spells it out. There's more pointing out instructions. Because it's not just about being mindful, this is being known. But the Buddha tells us what in particular to be mindful of. Suffering, I mean, the short answer is suffering and the end of suffering. Because there's lots of things, like with that basic general practice of, oh yeah, this is being known, this is being known, right? It's like, and some retreatants, yogis, practitioners, they do this. They, they don't get good instruction and they just stick with the breath. And it's like, all they know is like, breathing in is being known. And that breathing out is being known. And they can do this for years and years and they... They might get some real nice calm in their practice, or who knows how things will unfold, but they're missing the opportunity to take that training and notice what else is being, what else can be known in the moment, like the skillfulness and unskillfulness of how the mind is relating, how suffering comes to be, how suffering is released, right? Or these Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, there's a cause, and there's an end. And there's a path that brings that to fruition, the Eightfold Path. So the Buddha starts by walking them through how seeking, like fixating on sense pleasure as some kind of answer, it's not the way, and they kind of already knew that. And then this was the sort of surprise. And rejecting it, sort of um, annihilationist or like giving up on sensuality is also a self-view, a fixed view. I'm done with sensuality or sensuality is dangerous. And remember the other night I gave uh, the sutta, the discourse with the Buddha. This wasn't the Buddha, it was Chitta, that layperson and the two ox and talking about what is the problem? There's a sensitive human, a sensitive mind and sense experience, is it that we're sensitive or that we're having certain sense experiences? Because that's really what sensuality is, is the sensitivity to sense experience. That's what sensuality is. What's the problem there? It's not the sensitivity, this is what Chitta said, and it's not the experience. It's what it is, it's what arises in conjunction with those two things, which is you know, the active part of ignorance, craving, greed and aversion, right? That's what arises, you know, tied to the feeling tone or connected with the feeling tone. We like and crave, want what's pleasant and the unpleasant feeling tone we want to get rid of, we want to destroy what's unpleasant. So all of a sudden we're at war with sensuality and it's part of that basic misunderstanding that will find happiness by finally getting sensuality where we want it. Has anybody gotten there? 
No. Do we know anybody who's gotten there? Like they have sensuality really down. You know, like the ultimate celebrity or whatever, whoever you think has good fortune. You know, the people we often revere or the people who seem um, liberated or not tied to sensuality, to the particulars of their sense experience. Right? I mean, those are, you know, when we think about whether it's Mother Teresa or, you know, whoever might come to mind, it will be different people for different folks here in the room, but maybe just somebody local, like a neighbor or an aunt, you know, but they <coughs> seem to be navigating their life without a lot of attachment. Right? And that's inspiring. Good things happen, and they're okay with it. Bad stuff happens, they manage it. Their, you know, as much as we can tell, their well-being isn't so directly tied to the good and difficult experiences that come their way. I was so moved, um, one of my best friends died in January, and I hadn't seen him much lately because he moved to California. Kamala knows this person, Paul Noor, who was one of Kamala's students back in uh, the 90s when Kamala started teaching in Minnesota. And uh, Paul was one of the leaders in our community and somebody who taught with me in the early years of Common Ground in Minneapolis before he moved out to the West Coast. And uh, he's not that much older than me, and he had pan- pancreatic cancer and died in November. And uh, so I heard about his cancer sometime in the summer and sent him a little note and uh, with a little photograph of when my partner and our cat and me and just sending love to Paul. And he sent back a picture. Uh, it was a little shocking, you know, because he was such a big and vigorous and healthy guy and, you know, really active and taught Qigong and just had a kind of a glow of chi about him generally. And so I saw his picture. I've not seen him in a, while, in a while. And then after the surgery and the chemo and the radiation and, you know, getting close to dying. And, uh, and even though it was a really nice picture playing with his grandson, um, so I wrote back something in the, after he sent me the photograph, uh, you look like a wise old man. <laughs> and then he, he had that quote that I, I couldn't remember where it was from, but you probably heard it. Uh, he, just, he just wrote, by the awful grace of God. And uh, you might know that from um, Esosceles, this Greek. He's kind of known for being the head or the, one of the main voices in the sort of Greek tragedy way back in the day, around the time of the Buddha, interestingly enough. And uh, there's some speculation that there was some sharing of these ideas. But I looked up sort of the bigger quote where that, by the awful grace of God, comes from, he who learns must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart and in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. So I don't think the Buddha would say exactly that, 
but there's some real wisdom about there's something liberating and beautiful. <clears throat> Sharon Salzberg has a great line in her book on loving kindness where she says something, this is a rough paraphrase, something like, suffering is not redemptive, which is true. I mean, suffering is suffering. It's not redemptive. And then the next part is, but opening to suffering is redemptive. So there's something about realizing the mind or realizing the heart that knows how to show up, knows how to be intimate, knows how to be unafraid of suffering the way it is in life. That is why this move, the Buddha as a teacher trying to distill his insight in a way that will be useful, how brilliant it was that he grounded it in suffering and really talked about the path in terms of suffering. It was trustworthy, but it was powerfully effective. By placing dukkha, especially the more subtle aspects of dukkha, front and center in the path, then, because you see how much integrity that has, then the path is only a path if it allows the heart to be intimate with the deepest, clearest, most exposed experience of dukkha. <clears throat> That's the kind of awakening I'm interested in. Right? I'm not interested in the equanimity that comes when everybody is telling me they like me. I'm more interested in the equanimity that comes when people don't like me or are insulting me, right? Or, you know, the equanimity we have when we get a great massage or we've been on a roll and exercising, you know, for many days in a row and doing all the right things and eating, drinking green juices and, <laughs> you know, and we just feel like the mind, body's in balance, we feel like super powerful, but how about when I start to ache and it goes on for a couple days? Or even more disturbing for my mind is like when something starts to happen and I don't know what it could possibly be. I had a bad cold this winter and, uh, and then somehow in the middle of it, I started getting so dizzy when I would move. And I just assumed, you know, okay, it's just related to the cold. And then eventually, after a long time, the cold cleared up, but the dizziness would still happen. It would be like, I mean, it was sort of an interesting feeling, but it was a little weird. And it, and it's sort of just that disconcerting, like, I don't know what this is. And just a short resolution of that. I mean, sometimes it works to Google things. So I Googled up, you know, dizziness. And then there were these physical therapists I found. Some of you in the medical world might know this. There's these little crystals that can get dislodged in your inner ear, and you can get this really intense dizziness. And you just do these few moves. I just did it on my own. Lying down, you kind of turn this way and lift up fast and do this and do that. It takes about 15 seconds, and it went away. And it was like two months of dizziness. It just cleared up. But the, the point I wanted to make is just how... <laughs> Like my equanimity, my sense of well-being, my sense I can do this, I can live my life, I can show up and do what needs to be done, was really dependent on like feeling good. 
And when I don't feel good, well, it's, you know, it seems appropriate to be grouchy or be, you know, depressed or to be, you know, all the different things that we tend to fall into. So let me just read a little bit from Paul's email. So then, uh, I forget, I sent him another email and this is like three months before he died. And, and the subject line in this email, he says, checking in, dot, 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 and checking out. <laughs> he had a nice sense of humor. It's been quite a journey for sure. I'm happy and most gratified to report that all of the internal work I have done has really shined through as I engage, as I engage end of life, illness, loss, and grief. The fact of dying much sooner rather than much later has not been much of an issue. In fact, there have been many benefits. It has been, it has made, uh, it has made it easy to drop a few more of my compulsive concerns. No need to worry about long-term dental care. And then he goes on about (laughs) other things he doesn't have to worry about. And then he, but this is the, the poignant part. He says, people listen to me. When I play the death card in conversation, since I'm at ease with the prospect, it presents a great opportunity to model something that people seem to respond to. We can often have deeper, impactful interactions as the conversation turns from poor Paul to life, death, dukkha, freedom, and the like. These are the issues that I've always cared most about and would much rather talk about than have inane chit-chat. Lastly, I have really come to appreciate the greatest gift of all, that my life is, quote, in love. I never really knew this. Diana, his partner, says, of course, lots of people love you, but I never really got it. I'm now overwhelmed by the kindness and kind concerns of so many people. And he goes on talking about this. And... uh, yeah, it's just really powerful. I, Diane, I went out and did the led the memorial service in January, and I spoke to Diana. I had a lot of time, and she said, uh, "Oh, it's just so beautiful." So, like two nights before Paul died, she heard some sounds, and she walked into the kitchen. And he was just sitting there. So, and he had been sort of bedbound for a while, and all of a sudden, he was just up sitting at the kitchen kitchen counter, and he says to Diana, I, "I'm going to die soon." And then, uh, you know, they had some, you know, talked some more. But that morning, Saturday morning, when, you know, a few hours before he died, uh, Diana was just checking on him, and he asked to be propped up so he could sit up. And then uh, she was just sitting with him. She had to use the bathroom or make lunch or something. And a couple hours later, while sitting up, he died, passed away. And evidently, a really peaceful way. And Paul was, you know, he was a real devoted practitioner for many, many years, one of the sort of founding people in our insight meditation community in Minnesota. And uh, it's just really an example of being curious about life and about the unreliable and uncertain and ungovernable reality, really making peace with it and realizing the heart that can make 
peace with life. This is from Ajahn Chah. In Dharma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. It's similar to the way we don't like to look at old people, but prefer to look at young and attractive. Without seeing dukkha, we don't really look into and resolve our problems. We just bear with them or pass them by indifferently. So the Buddha described three kinds of dukkha from the most obvious to the most subtle. There's what's called dukkha dukkha, which is the ordinary physical and mental pain that just comes our way. Right? Pain, as some people have said, teachers have said, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Right? So the ordinary pain of loss, these eight worldly winds, the downside of the eight worldly winds, the insult, the blame, the pain, the failures that come our way, they hurt. Bumping our head in the cabinet hurts. Right? Being too hot, being too cold hurts. And then there's the second kind of dukkha, viparinama dukkha, which is the dukkha that arises when we get something that feels good, but either we're experiencing or we even know that it's going to slip away. So one teacher talks about it, like if you have a, a boil you know, on your skin, if there's cool water on it, it feels good for a while. And then when the cool water stops flowing over it, the burning, itching starts again. Right, so even when we're soothing something, like we scratch the itch, but we know it's just going to keep itching. Or any of the ways that, you know, I get this more and more because food has been a real refuge. You know that way we dangle a carrot? Well, you can, you know, you're going to have another meal. Hang in there, you know. And, you know, I'm like so many of us are these days, you know, not having kids. Um, I get to eat what I want pretty much. I can afford pretty much. I mean, I don't have complicated or expensive tastes. So I really can promise myself pretty much anything I would want to eat. But there's something, it's like losing its charm. And I still might go out of my way to get a piece of chocolate or, you know, what for me it's more ice cream. But it's like now I don't even believe the carrot. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, it's something. It's something to do. But I don't really believe the promise anymore. You know, that, not that it's bad, but it's just what it is. It's that smooth, sweet, cool, and sometimes crunchy, <laughs> depending what's in it. And it's, isn't it, isn't it interesting? I mean, just taking this example, it's like how much work those folks have to do to come up with different flavors. 
made with different substances. You know, the cashew milk now is a new one, and soy milk, and oat milk, and I'm forgetting one, but, you know, besides cow milk. And then just the different flavors. Like, and the cardamom was a recent one, cardamom flavored ice cream. And, uh, oh, there was a very salted pretzel, chocolate covered salted pretzel ice cream. But it's a promise, isn't it? Like maybe, maybe that. And on and on. So we'll start to notice, like, I notice this on longer retreats especially, like the promise of being able to go to bed at night. Right? And then after a while it's like the mind realizes it only lasts for as long as it lasts and then you get up. And like even when I'm doing a self-retreat and I can sleep as long as I want, it's like after the, a while the mind and body would prefer not to be in bed. You know, it's ready, ready to be mindful, ready to do the day. So as a sort of that false promise that something is going to, that's that viparinama dukkha, when you start to see that even when you get the gratification you want, it's not really much of anything. It's not nothing. Gratification is actually something. But it isn't, it doesn't resolve dukkha in in the deeper sense. And knowing that is liberating. Right? To begin to know that. Because then we don't have to aimlessly, you know, seek out something that's not really going to deliver. And related to this, there's this great line from Susan Piver in one of her articles. She's a good, I, I like her articles. I haven't read any of her books, but some of her books have been, chapters have been in some of the Buddhist journals. I think she's in the Shambhala tradition. And she's written a couple really interesting things about dharma and relationships. And she talks about being at one of her places she practices. And I guess it was a retreat and they were talking, she was talking with someone she didn't know and and they just had a nice conversation and he started sharing about his life. He was evidently some six-year-old guy and had been dating a younger person and decided, they decided to move in together, and so he's filling this picture out to this um, Buddhist teacher and Buddhist writer, and then he just, out of the blue, says, so do you think it can work? You know, because it's problematic and age difference and all that, and she just, she was going to, she said in her article, like, my first impulse was like, how do I know if it's going to work? You know, but she just heard herself saying something else which was brilliant, and she thought so too, but not, you know, it's interesting, this is a a little effective practice where we start doing really wise things and saying really wise things, and it doesn't feel personal. I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. And the feeling we're left with is, well, that was really useful, or that was really good. I'm so glad I heard that, even though it was us who said it. And so this is one of those moments. She said to this person, just like with real confidence, of course it can work as long as you don't expect it to make you happy. <laughs> and that's such a beautiful response about relationships. Like, of course relationships can work 
as long as you don't expect them to make you happy. Because it's that sense that this thing is going to make me happy. Right? And then when it doesn't, we parinama dukkha. Right? Oh, one more time, false promise. I thought this is going to do it. And then there's an even more subtle kind of dukkha, sankara dukkha, the dukkha woven into the fabric of our experience. So it's not philosophical, it's right here, all of this different aspects of dukkha, right? This is something that we wake up to directly, immediately. And the sankara dukkha is when the mind is more stable, awareness is more stable, more subtle, and we see it's basically the mind is seeing more continuously that this experience is a changing process. It's a flow that there isn't any ground, there isn't anything to grab hold of. It's much more like sand through the fingers. I mean, we see that sometimes with our thoughts. It's like a, sometimes when the mind is re, relaxed and not reactive to thought, and then it can be almost like a spewing, like a waterfall of verbiage, just flowing. Sometimes the mind isn't even bothering to have like a full thought or anything that even makes sense. It's just like bits of mental images and bits of words and just kind of... And, and the mind just really gets a sense that the whole thing is... Uh, yeah, there's, there's no place to kind of put a stake to sort of establish oneself. And that we call sankara dukkha. And the more the mind, the heart opens to that, the natural, unavoidable response is letting go. The letting go of clinging, the letting go of attachment and grasping. Because when the mind is seeing the deeper nature of experience, See, it's ignorance is required for attachment. Right? For the mind to grasp, to take something personal, to, to identify, it has to feel as if there's something there to own. But when the mind is seeing experience more clearly, what arises naturally is letting go. Equin- the equanimity of non-grasping. And the Buddha uses this, and we'll talk, uh, probably both Kamala and I in the next few days, we'll kind of talk more about the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And the ending of suffering is really described by the Buddha as the cessation of craving. It's not like I'm making myself stop craving. It's much more the mind or the heart is seeing things as they are, seeing experience just as it is. And craving ceases because the mind is seeing things just as they are. Seeing the changing, ephemeral, insubstantial, unreliable nature, not nature of experience that's not capable of satisfying the ignorant sense of a me who wants solid ground or the me who wants permanent comfort or permanent safety. And this helps us circle back to compassion. But it's really like when we 
from our own experiences, from our practice, when we think about all those moments when we've done our best to show up to dukkha, to what's difficult to show up to, we really see how essential compassion is. The motivation, like, because I care, I'm not going to run, I'm not going to pretend, I'm going to, you know, I might have to touch and go, like look and then turn away. I might need to do something to stabilize awareness and come back. But I see this as my path. And that's really the teaching of dukkha. The Buddha talks about three insights. This came, this is from that, uh, that first talk, the setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion. There is dukkha. It's relevant. It's my teacher. It's to be understood. This is an insight, like, oh, it's not a mistake that there's dukkha. It's a, it's my path. It's a teacher. It has something to teach me. And then the third insight in this first noble truth is, and I've learned what this teacher has to teach. Right? I've really given myself, relaxed with dukkha, been curious, been patient, been humble, so not bringing a fixed idea to the experience, but really all ears, <coughs> curious, authentically curious, what is this? And so this is our task. Now remember, we can't, we don't always have the stability or the balance to open to dukkha. And sometimes when it shows up, it just flattens us because we're, the mind in that moment is very established in not wanting to see dukkha and it shows up anyway and it runs right over us. And it takes some time to recover, like how to once again feel safe enough to open, how to develop that stability of present moment awareness again and the subtlety of present moment awareness. Right? how to develop the confidence and the skill set so when it comes back, in whatever shape or form dukkha shows up, we have the wisdom in the heart, has the wherewithal to say, oh, this is dukkha. The, Buddhist, the Buddha teaches dukkha is to be understood. Dukkha is to be seen as a teacher. Let me do my... Now let me walk this path. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of complaining. I really want to know what this is. I just end with this simple little teaching that I've heard Sylvia Borstein use. And I think the way she tells it is, maybe it was even her first retreat. She's one of the senior teachers at Spirit Rock. She's a real elder in our insight meditation community and a wonderful teacher. And I think on her first retreat, if I remember the story correctly, you know, doing her best, struggling like all of us do on our first retreat, but she saw this little sign up in somebody's living room because they were just using somebody's living room. And there was this little sign, life is so difficult, 
how can we be anything but kind? Mm. And just again that point that it's compassion, kindness, that really allows us to do this work that the Buddha is asking us to do. We can't kind of do it with any sort of arrogant smugness, like, I'll do this before the rest of you, and then I'll be, you know, top gun in the Dharma world or something like that, because it doesn't work. It's really that compassion that I don't know another way, and I care enough of this life that I'm willing, because it's really going into the unknown. The known is running from dukkha, hiding from dukkha, distracting ourselves from dukkha. That's, that's what we're good at. That's what the ego knows. But compassion has this other superpower, which is, you know, this deepening fearlessness to turn toward what we don't want to turn toward and do that with some real stability. That's what the love of compassion does. It, it's that stability because we really trust it. We trust that it has everybody's best interests at heart. So let's just leave it here. Just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Thanks, everyone. So we have uh, about 30 minutes for walking practice. Come back and have a sit together, do our chanting. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.